All right, good morning, familia. Can you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. If you are here with me, could you please say amen? Starting in verse 1. When the word came to Sambalat, Tobiad, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of, the, of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. They were scheming to harm me, but I sent messengers to them with, their, with this reply. I am carrying a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me, they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand, was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you, uh, that you and the Jews are plotting a revolt, and therefore you are building a wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report... This report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. Verse 8. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you speak to us today. As we understand the concept of what it means to be great or to become people of greatness. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, you may be seated. So today we are finishing our Nehemiah, our series based on the book of Nehemiah. And with this set of teachings, what we have been trying to do is to show you what it means to be restored people seeking to be agents of restoration. And I believe that the message today uh, explains the why we have been teaching everything we have been teaching. I believe that the message today explains the why we talked about prayer, and why talked about being sent, and why having an understanding of what it means to be called, and why, why having an understanding of what it means to be merciful, and why having an understanding of what it means to be generous. Because at the end of the day, the reason why we needed to talk about all of that is because every believer, every Christian, every person that has proclaimed or claims to believe in Jesus as a Lord and Savior is called for greatness. That is, that's part of our call. To be a Christian is to pursue greatness. 
Now, these are my three points for today. We're gonna, I'm going to give you a definition of what greatness means in light of the Bible, I think. What is the aim of greatness and what is the secret to become great? What is greatness? What is the aim of greatness and what is the secret to become great? So I'm going to start with the first one here. Um, there's something about the word greatness that I find really interesting. Actually, I believe that it's a, it's a special word. It's so and so special that when you look for synonyms of the word greatness, you find words like this. Magnitude, immensity, largeness, importance, significance. Actually, the word greatness is so and so important, so and so popular. That is the word that most motivational speakers use. They would say something like, you were created for greatness, which is what I just told you. They would say things like, you ought to be great. They would write a book that says, how to move from being good to being great, which, by the way, is a really good book. What I find interesting, though, in, in the secular definition of greatness is that I believe that they have reduced greatness to simply accomplishments. They have reduced the concept of greatness to simply dreams fulfilled or the size of an organization, the size of a company, even prosperity. And as a society, we have this tendency to worship and admire and seek to imitate those kind of people. And even though there's nothing wrong with anything accomplishing great things, the problem, though, is that that definition of greatness is way too narrow. It's way too simple. Greatness could be that, and greatness might be that, but from a biblical perspective, greatness is much more than that. And I want to show you that with the life of Nehemiah as we close this series. So I want to give you a little bit of context here, especially if you're coming to the church, visiting the church, and you haven't heard uh, some of our teachings here already. Um, but, but, but let me just start telling you that, uh, reminding you that Nehemiah was a man called by God. He was called by God to participate in what God was already doing. God, had already, uh, God was already planning to redeem his people, and he called Nehemiah to participate in it. His job was to, to help this, the, you could say, God's people rebuild the walls that protected the city because those walls were completely destroyed. And those walls needed to be restored because the city needed to be restored, physically speaking, but they needed to be restored, spiritually speaking. The restoration of the wall was a physical restoration and a spiritual restoration. So Nehemiah responds to this call, and after two months of labor, right before the wall is done, a group of people go against Nehemiah and his plans, and they want, and they use two things to try to take him away from his call. One is to distract them. And second, to imitate him. Because they know if they could do that to Nehemiah, he will not finish what God called them to do. You can actually see the distraction here in verse 2. When they call him to meet with them in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. 
Now, if you read the text with me, you realize that Nehemiah's response was no. Actually, he said no to oh no. I was brilliant, people. Three hours of work right there. But because they noticed that the distraction did not work, then they moved to fear or intimidation. And that's exactly what we see in verse 6. It is reported among the nations that you and the Jews are planning to revolt, go against the government, if you will. And therefore, you are building the wall, and you want, and you're doing all of this because you want to become a king. So this is basically what they're saying, which I find super interesting because we do the same thing today. They approached Nehemiah, and they said, we have heard that some people said. You know that when people start a conversation like that, you know it's a lie. Because if it was true, that would give you names. We have heard that some people say that the only reason why you're building this wall is because you want independence. We have heard that some people said that the only reason why you're doing all of this is because you want to be a king. Oh, but be careful, Nehemiah. Because if the real king finds out what you're about to do, you are in trouble. Interesting enough, this is how the devil works as well. Distraction and intimidation all the time. Distraction and intimidation. Now, Nehemiah reads, sees right through them. And in verse 9, he responds this way. And this is what he says in verse 9. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak, we'll be intimidated for the work, and it will not be completed. Now, it is important to remember that this is not the first time Nehemiah is going through something like this. By now, in that story, Nehemiah already has, he has already experienced all kinds of oppositions, all kinds of problems, all kinds of struggles. The question that I have for you today is this. Why is it that he never stopped? Actually, what I find even more amazing about this man, it wasn't that he just never stopped. Is that he had no reason why to start. See, Nehemiah was a man that had a nice life. You know, he worked for the king. He lived a comfortable life. He was minding his own business. He didn't need this. So the question remains, why is it that he never stopped? And even better, why did he even start? And I believe that the reason why Nehemiah never stopped and even started was because of his definition of greatness. And his definition of greatness didn't have anything to do with the wall. And didn't have anything to do with him accomplishing great things. And didn't have anything to do with being recognized. His definition of greatness was completely different. And I believe that the answer is in verse 3. This is how he responds right at the beginning. I am carrying a great project and I cannot go down. In other words, he's saying, I, am, I cannot stop what I'm doing because what I'm doing is great. I cannot stop what I'm doing because what I'm doing is so and so great. It's huge, actually. And people will read this, and if you have humanistic tendencies... You will read this and you will say, wow, Nehemiah is awesome. I want to be like Nehemiah. 
willpower. I want to remind you that Nehemiah is the person that wrote the book of Nehemiah. I want to remind you that this is his journal. And it feels weird that if you read this sentence, you think that Nehemiah is calling us to admire him. It feels weird, like if Nehemiah is writing this, for us to focus on him. If that would be the, if that would be the case, Nehemiah is seeking self-praise. Therefore, that cannot be his definition of greatness. The focus, the emphasis, the importance of the sentence is not I am. The focus of the sentence is the great project. The most important thing about that sentence is the phrase, the great project. You know what made Nehemiah great? That he was willing to give himself, himself away for something that was better and bigger than himself. That's why I want to offer you today a different, more biblical definition of greatness. Greatness is being willing to give yourself away. That's great. That's the reason why we admire a mother that gives her life for her child. That's the reason why we admire someone that has been in the army and gave him, him, his life or her life for, for this country. This is the reason why the heroes of our faith are not known for their great accomplishments, but because they were willing to die to themselves. I actually think that the Bible uses all of these four words as, a, as synonyms of the word greatness. See, the only way that you could be faithful is when you're willing to give yourself away. See, the only way that you can sacrifice, by definition, is giving yourself away. See, the only way someone commits to something is when they're willing to give themselves away. It is to give yourself away the best definition of what it means to love someone. It's not about accomplishments. It's not about dreams. It's not about the size of things you have. It's not about anything you can accomplish. Greatness, at the end of the day, is about you learning how to give yourself away. Greatness is about finding something so beautiful, so big, so perfect, that you, that you are willing to give yourself away for it. This week I was remind, uh, remembering, I think that is the sermon that made John Piper popular among young adults. This is year 2000, and he spoke before 40,000 young adults in a conference called Passion. And this is how he op opens this, that sermon. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter. And then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things. 
but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high EQ or EQ. That's countercultural, people. You don't have to have good looks or riches. That's countercultural, people. You don't have to come from a fine family or fine school. That's countercultural. You just have to know a few basic, simple, great, majestic, and changing, obvious, simple, glorious things. And be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. Which is why anybody in this crowd, and I would say in this church, can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. Do you know why Nehemiah was so great? Because he knew that the restoration of Jerusalem was not about him. That's why he's so great. Because he understood that called them to something much bigger, bigger and much better than himself. He knew that it wasn't about him. And I say to you that if you want to pursue greatness, you must learn to give yourself away for something much better and much bigger than yourself. I believe that that's what has made the difference in Christianity throughout history. Actually, this week I was reading, let me move forward here in a second. I was reading about this missionary in the 1800s. And this is why he's known for saying this, I have one passion. It is he, it is he alone. I am called to preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. And I'm reading that, I'm listening to that, I'm thinking, that's hard. Do what I'm supposed to do and be forgotten. That's hard. Do you know why? Because we are yet to grow in our understanding that when God calls us to something, it's not about ourselves. It's not about you. It's not about you. What is it then? What is it that transformed Nehemiah to the point that he was willing to give himself for something better and bigger? And before I move on to point number two, I don't want you to assume that you know the answer. Don't assume the answer. So let's go to point number two, the aim. The, the key sentence in the entire passage is verse number three, and I'm not going to move away from number three. Because he says, I am carrying now a great project, and I cannot go down. What I want you to see, though, is that the word project here is, it has like a double uh, definition, if you will. You could say that project can be translated as this huge thing that I'm doing. What is interesting, though, is that from the original, you can translate the word project as mission. Really interesting. I have, I have a great mission. And the root of the word project in the original is the same root that we use to describe someone that has been sent. 
In other words, Nehemiah knows that it is God, the one that sent him on a mission. In a mission that is so big, so beautiful, so perfect, that it's worth everything. Now, the assumption is to say that that mission is the restoration of Jerusalem, both physically and spiritually. And I would say that is part of the mission, but it's not the entire mission. It's part of the answer, but it's not the entire answer. I want to argue that the reason why Nehemiah did what he did I want to argue that the reason why Nehemiah was faithful and was willing to sacrifice and was committed, yes, it was for the love of God's people and God's plans. But there had to be something prior to that. I want to argue that what pushed and pulled and motivated Nehemiah to do what he did was his unshakable commitment to the glory of God. Which is a concept that the, that, the new, that the modern church has forgotten. That everything we do and everything we have at the end of the day is for the glory of God. I find it interesting that when you read the entire letter, and I went through the letter again, once again this week, just to make sure that I was not saying something that is not there. You don't find the word glory in the entire letter. And it doesn't matter. Because the word glory in the Bible can also be translated as weight. It's when you find God so beautiful, so amazing, so pure, so perfect, so fulfilling, so satisfying that you're willing to do anything for him. And I want to show you how I know that this is Nehemiah's, why I know that this is Nehemiah's motivation. Why I'm saying that the reason why he accepted everything was the glory of God. And I'm going to walk you through this really, really fast. Faster than what you ever experienced before. <laughs> Look at here in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 5. Look at how he describes God. The Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. Right from the beginning, you know the relationship that this man has with his Savior, God. Look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. He says, I worship. I'm intoxicated. I am transformed by your name. You know, this word right here is when you are so and so in love with someone's name, means character, that you're willing to do anything for that person. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He calls God, my God, who had, put, uh, who had put it in my heart to do what I have to do for Jerusalem. I, I, I find this verse amazing. You know why? Because when you read the book of Nehemiah and you have Nehemiah as the center of the story, you think that we're supposed to be like Nehemiah. But what the Bible says and what Nehemiah says is that the only reason why he went to Jerusalem to do what he was supposed to do is because God put it in his heart. It is God influencing his desires. It tells you that he believes in a God that is so sovereign, so powerful that he even influenced desires. 
And then he goes to chapter 4, verse 15, and he talks about that God has the power to frustrate anything that man is doing. And in chapter 5, he says, I fear God more than anything else. And then in chapter 6, he says that it is God the one that gives me strength. And then you go to chapter 7, verse 5, and he says that it is God the one that put me in my heart to be generous. That is in the context of that letter. And then he goes to chapter 13, which is at the end of the story, and he says, this God that I worship this guy that I serve, this guy that is sovereign, this guy that is great, this guy that is awesome, this guy that is perfect, is my God. The only reason, the, let me put it this way, the primary reason why Nehemiah did what he did. Because he knew that everything is about God. It is because of God. And it is for God. You are not here because life is about you. We are not Christians because life is about us. We don't have the Bible because the Bible is about us. Christianity is about the glory. That's why one of the Christian uh, confessions puts it this way. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose? What is the purpose for, our, for us being here? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You know how countercultural this is, people? Life is about him. This is the reason why Romans says everything is from him and through him and for him. For him be the glory. That's what made Nehemiah great. Because his great project, yes, it was the restoration of Jerusalem. But more than that, his great project was the glory of God. So listen, if you are a Christian... If you consider yourself to be a believer, this is how you know that you are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. When everything you are and everything you do is about the glory of God. Actually, the more you embrace that, the more you find joy, the more you want that. St. Augustine will put it like this. The face of God is so lovely. And so beautiful that once you have seen it, nothing else can give you pleasure. It will give insatiable satisfaction on which you can never get tired. You know, I'm prepping for this sermon. And I get this holy fear. Because the purpose of this sermon is His glory. Not mine. So if as a pastor, I preach a sermon, and I pastor people, and people don't find God more beautiful, more perfect, more fulfilling, more satisfying than anything else, I failed as a pastor. And, it's, and if as a husband, 
I don't love my wife for the glory of God. I failed as a husband. And as a father, I don't teach my girls how to live for the glory of God. I failed as a dad. And if I am not intoxicated by the glory of God and make my ministry and my life about me, I don't know him. You don't know him. See, in the 1900s, there was a revival called the Welsh Revival in the United Kingdom. And one of the preachers that the Lord used during that time was David Morgan. And at the end of this sermon, um, history says that his face shone like the face of an angel. And as they're going back home, his companion said, said to him, this was a great night of many blessings, right, Mr. Morgan? And then he says, yes, he was. But then he says, the Lord will give us great things if, we, if he could only trust us. To which his companion responded, what do you mean by that? And then Mr. Morgan says, if he could trust us not to steal his glory. And then he started crying. And quoted, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. You know what I found out in my own personal walk with the Lord? Is that everything I'm trying to pursue something that the Lord has not given me is because I'm seeking my glory. That when I'm so quick to defend myself is because I'm seeking my glory. That when I have a hard time forgiving others, it's because I'm seeking my glory. That when I fight for things that I deserve, it's because I'm seeking my glory. That when I'm not willing to wait for what the Lord is doing, it's because I'm seeking my glory. And maybe, 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 just maybe the reason why the Lord has not used his church more is because we want to steal his glory. I think that this is the perfect way for us to finish this series. Revival only comes when we, everything we do is about him. Question. Can we begin to change? Can we actually live this out? Yes, I think, really quick. And that's why we need the secret. So I want to invite you to read verse 3, not through the lenses of Nehemiah, but through the lenses of Jesus. Actually, I would argue that if you are a believer, it's almost impossible for you to read that sentence and not think of Jesus. Because that sentence sounds very similar to what Jesus responded to Peter when he told him not to go to the cross. You know what Jesus responded? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. To me, You do not have in mind the concerns of God. See, that sentence sounds very similar to what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. When he's afraid about going to the cross. In which Jesus prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. 
See, this event is very similar to what Jesus went through when he was nailed to the cross. In which people are walking by, making fun of Jesus, and this is why they said to him, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Get down from that cross. I thought you were the son of God. And he didn't. Why? Because you are his great prophet. And because saving you will be the way in which he gives glory to God. There is no greater joy than giving yourself for something better and bigger than yourself. That being the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Actually, I'm going to put this prayer on the screen. I'm going to read it and just read it out right there in the, in, the, in the secret of your heart. Oh, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, grant us the strength as we carry on with this great mission. Grant us discernment as we hear the voice of our adversaries. Grant us confidence as we confess the weakness of our hands. May the favor of our Lord, our God, rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, as we close with this series, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you reveal yourself so and so much that we get to see your beauty your perfection, your holiness, your power, your grace, your mercy in such a way that all we want to do is to live for you. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...